0: Welcome to the Cover Crop Strategies podcast. I'm Sarah Hill, Associate Editor. Today, I'd like to introduce Justin McMekin, an Assistant Professor for Crop Protection and Cropping Systems with the University of Nebraska Extension. Today, Justin will be discussing integrating cover crops into integrated pest management plans. Welcome to the podcast, Justin.
1: Thanks. Thanks for inviting me.
0: Hey, my pleasure. So, Let's go ahead and and get started. Um, Why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Yeah, so I'm a crop protection and cropping system specialist. I'm located at the Eastern Nebraska Research and Extension Center with, of course, the University of Nebraska. About half of my lab's work focuses on cover crops. We focus on the insect or, in a larger context, the arthropod interactions in, in those cover crops, which I guess we'll get into, but uh, typically don't get a lot of calls unless growers have problems. But more we research about cover crops, the more good things we're finding.
0: Fantastic. So let's kind of start with the basics here. Not all growers might be familiar with or, or utilize an integrated pest management plan. So tell us a little bit about what an IPM is and what it should entail.
1: Yeah, IPM plans are really a combination of tactics or methods, which I'll discuss briefly here in a second, that uh, they use together in combination uh, rather than separately. And that is uh, a method that allows for a long-term sustainable practice that's both safe for the environment and uh, economical for their operation. They're complex, they involve a lot of biology and ecology, and there's kind of A couple major components to them. We'll hear these throughout today, I'm certain with with some of the questions that I'll answer, but biological control is one. So these are insects or natural enemies that feed on other insects. So these are good things in the system that we can find. Cultural control tactics, uh, which may involve, uh, you know, how we terminate a cover crop or when we plant or things like that, uh, mechanical or physical controls, which are less common in our system. And then of course, what growers are very familiar with is chemical control. And we kind of look at that as a last resort when we can't keep populations of in particular pests below a level that's acceptable for growers. So it has a lot of components to it. It's students in, in graduate programs spend entire semesters uh, learning about it, but we need to know what we're dealing with. So Growers need to be familiar with what pests are in their area. Uh, They need to know how to look for them and determine if they're a problem. Uh, They also need to know what to do when they find them. And that's where I come in a lot of cases is trying to figure out what to do when we have something that's causing problems. And then once they know that, they want to look to next year and say, what could I have done differently to avoid this? Uh, And if I can't, then all those tactics I mentioned, kind of employing those. And then after those tactics are applied, kind of going back and saying, well, did that work? If it did, that's great. If it didn't, why not? What, what might we need to change? So you kind of get an idea that this is continuous and never-ending in terms of revisiting this. And, and I mentioned this like it's focused on entomology or insects, but it applies to plant pathology and diseases as well as weeds and other, other things in our system.
0: So from your answer, I'm gathering that an IPM plan should be something that growers revisit maybe on an annual basis. Is that accurate?
1: That's pretty safe. I think uh, for growers, you know, as they go through the course of the season, you know, depending if they have a crop consultant or scout their fields themselves, they want to be taking notes. You know, I, uh, obviously we take pesticide records when we apply those, uh, but maybe, you know, when they terminated something, if they noticed pest pressure, what the kind of pressure was like, did they apply any tactics, uh, and, and kind of that follow-up to say, did this work or did it not work? Uh, I think at the end of the year or once a year sitting down and going, okay, what might I want to change is is good as an overview, but regularly through the year kind of saying, you know, how well do these things work?
0: Okay. So let's get down to the nitty gritty then. What would be some examples of utilizing cover crops into an IPM?
1: Yeah. Well, and this gets into literally research that's happening today in, in many States that I'm involved in as well as here in Nebraska is understanding the role of cover crops. So do they pose an increased risk or potential benefit from insects in the system or largely arthropods in the system? And and that defines their, their value or potential risk as part of an IPM plan. And so we're trying to assist growers in understanding maybe when to terminate a cover crop. And that's a a dicey topic because there are obvious agronomic reasons to keep that cover crop in as long as possible you know they may want to look at what cash crop they follow with or what cover crop they grow and so those components as part of an IPM practice are, are still largely unknown we, we've got a lot of research out there and I've got students like Gabby Carmona she's a PhD student in my lab has just done a systematic review of what is available for research in the U.S. and, and we're finding probably more holes than, than answers. A lot of good research has been done, it's just in different parts of the country.
0: Sure. So in your experience, what are some of those common pests that cover crops have proven to be effective against?
1: So, there are a couple different studies that have been done. One in South Dakota uh, looking at slender wheatgrass and uh, rootworms in the system, and, and they documented a decrease in rootworm pressure. Now, we don't typically grow slender wheatgrass here in Nebraska, and so one would wonder if that would translate to things like a rye cover crop, which is, or cereal rye, which is quite common we're finding in, in uh, cover crop production, or wheat as a cover crop. Other places they've documented decreases in pest pressure from the presence of of having beneficial insects in the system mostly indirectly and so they're often difficult just in a normal system to attract a given pest to study it and so understanding the role of cover crops just adds to that degree of complexity but there's a few studies out there who have that have indicated indirectly at least some drops in insect pressure
0: okay so you kind of mentioned different cover crop species being grown based on geography and and that type of thing. When you're looking at making a recommendation for an IPM and and using cover crop species as part of that plan, would a recommendation for a grower in Nebraska look different for, say, a grower in Michigan or Ohio versus even California and crops grown in that part of the world.
1: Yeah so I'm, I'm on a couple multi-state related research projects some of them span uh, quite a large part of the U.S. and what we immediately find in those conversations is how different the season is uh, say for us here in Nebraska versus Florida just on the timing of planting and how long those cover crops might exist um, drastically changes the conversation in terms of what is maybe most advantageous for this system or for the, you know, for theirs, just here in Nebraska, just to, you know, not to hammer on the complexity of, of the situation, but cereal rye is quite common. If I plant cereal rye in, in September now versus October or November, I will get a, a different amount, drastically, potentially different amount of biomass in the spring uh, mm-hmm. when I go to terminate that cover crop. And we're finding in our own research that biomass may dictate what insects are present in that system. So not even necessarily looking across cover crop species, but just even just within one species, uh, the amount of complexity that exists in terms of its interaction with arthropods is, is pretty uh, heavy. For my colleagues in in neighboring states, Iowa's done a lot. We have some studies going with Minnesota and Wisconsin. Lots of us are growing cereal rye because it's the most abundant cover crop being used. And there's historical research being done on crimson clover and other cover crops that, you know, present different parts of those systems. But, you know, there's just so much research to be done. We're focusing probably on what are the most abundantly used ones to determine whether or not there's risk associated with those or, or benefits that growers might want to consider.
0: So when we're talking about controlling pests, are you referring to pests that are above ground or are there also benefits that can be gained below the soil or in the soil for some of those more soil borne pests and issues that can come up?
1: Yeah, so uh, most of the literature out there is for above ground pests. And this would be like black cutworm, which for growers in Nebraska or Iowa, this insect doesn't overwinter here. It flies up every spring and it's, it's attracted to dense vegetation. So you can imagine our cover crops being present in the spring prior to planting and they might be attracted to that dense vegetation. Through armyworms, another one, you know, those, those insects are monitored for. So this goes back to IPM, you know, first identifying a pest, determining if it's present uh, we monitor for those coming into the state. And so growers know, and there is uh, ways to manage those pests in terms of maybe the timing of terminating those cover crops relative to planting the next cash crop. But then, you know, that's that's the above ground. And that's a very brief in the above ground. We have others, new ones that showed up. But below ground, we have things like seed corn maggot, which, mm-hmm. you know, it's implies by its name that it attacks corn but it'll attack soybeans as well it's uh, attracted by decomposing tissue and so if we were to turn in our cover crops now this goes back to another management practice most growers terminate with a herbicide uh, but if we were to incorporate that residue via tillage that insect would be attracted to lay eggs into that decaying tissue and as a result it could attack their cash crop when they plant we can also monitor for it with uh, degree day related formulations, so that 's kind of some brief examples of some insects that um, a lot of what we relate to risk in the system is based on its biology or ecology. so is this insect naturally attracted to vegetation that we present in the spring which which could potentially be our cover crops on the flip side of that, if I turn that over and say beneficial insects, um, same rules apply they are uh, often attracted to areas that you know, increase their ability to hunt in the case of spiders or these black beetles that we call them carabid beetles, but uh, they they feed near the soil surface. We pick a lot of them up in these little holes we put in the ground called pitfall traps, which essentially these insects scurrying across the soil surface end up falling into this and has antifreeze in it. We can count them later, but they're in there because like our rye, for instance, has a lot of aphids on it that are not not a pest uh, to our next cash crop, if it's corn or soybeans, that's for sure. Um, But they're a food source for all those those, uh, beneficial insects. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so this provides us with a significant advantage because it means that we have a potential for an abundance of predators in the system as we move into a vulnerable time for our next cash crop. Uh, We're of course still learning about this and trying to understand how when and why this happens that we see a greater abundance of of predators in these systems but their ecosystem services which is what i just described has some potential benefit so to kind of close that out in terms of pest pressure if we have a pest in a system and a grower gets geared towards the fact that oh man i can't tolerate a pest i'm going to do an insurance policy and throw in an insecticide when i terminate my cover crop they may be wiping out all those beneficial insects, which we 're doing some work to understand the implications of that um, but uh, the the other issue is they kind of clean the system out and allow those those pests to maybe move in unopposed and so this This all comes back to scouting. We really have to be certain that we are are seeing a pest in the system, and that that application might be warranted if we 're headed that direction
0: so what might be some examples of cover crop species that would attract some of those beneficial insects?
1: Yeah. And, and another really good question. So most of what we've focused on in our lab so far has been cereal rye. Uh, It's obviously not a flowering plant. Like when we think of our broad leaves like clovers Uh, Mm -hmm. and those bring a whole suite of potential opportunities uh, that, that we don't yet fully understand. Some some other states have done research in the past on that, uh, but uh, even our cereal rye, it seems that it's dense vegetation affords an opportunity for a niche in the system for those insects to hunt and feed within, and really what we're kind of faced with in the northern states is an agronomic issue in terms of time frame. Our corn and soybeans haven't been harvested yet here in the state. We've probably got uh, for a lot of growers, maybe another month, at least two to three weeks. And so we're looking at October uh, if we follow traditional cover crop establishment, which is a whole other area of research uh, that, that is underway and trying to find ways to get these cover crops in to give them more growing time. Uh, but we would be challenged to get a lot of things through the winter uh, with enough biomass and then our opportunity in the spring is is different as well. So I I think, you know, it's a really interesting area to work in. We're very appreciative of the fact that growers are are patient with us and allowing us to work with them. I work with a number of growers on their farms, uh, and that's really gratifying because they've been trying a number of different methods for several years. And so we tend to hook into their tactics and say, okay... Uh, based on what you're doing, how can we utilize this to answer some of those timing of termination related questions or use of insecticides uh, Mm -hmm. that uh, can help them be better informed about the tactics they have available to them.
0: So you mentioned using herbicides for termination and things like that. Let's talk about what might be some of the benefits of using cover crops to maybe control some of those pests or even deterring those pests, but using those cover crops compared to using a pesticide to get rid of those pests?
1: Yeah, our our pesticides most of them? uh, A a large majority of them are are very broad spectrum, so uh, they have a lot of things on the label that, that can kill them, and as we found in our our own research with with cover crops is that those applications take out a lot of things that we take for granted because we we often don't recognize their value in the system Uh, but but a lot of spiders and carabid beetles and other things that be present that feed on uh, some of our early colonizers or pests that may show up in a system just like black cutworm that i mentioned earlier or common stock borers another one that can move into these systems And so those acute practices like that, they cost money to apply, generally wipe out the system and then they leave the system blank for something new to come in. Um, Example this year is spider mites in our state. Uh, And so growers have been applying to control insect pests in the system. And uh, as a result, uh, we've had a flare-up of spider mites in different parts of the state. So We do need insecticides on occasion, they are of value, but it really depends on on the scenario we're faced with. So cover crops are very much aligning themselves with proper management, I think, under an area of potential preventative uh, management by uh, increasing the ecosystem services they serve and reducing potential pest pressure. And and there's probably a host of um, certain weed scientists that could talk about the reductions in weed pressure you know, and alternative strategies that are that are greatly needed for that discipline, as well as I know, plant pathology has its own gears of research, turning understanding its its value or risk.
0: Okay, we've talked a lot about corn and soybeans, and since they're the the two primary cash crops that a lot of growers are are looking at, what should be some of those cover crop species that just naturally should float themselves to the top when growers are thinking about uh, which species to plant and also controlling pests in corn and soybeans. I know you've mentioned cereal rye, but I wasn't sure if there were others.
1: Yeah, when I was asked early on when I started doing research in this area, you know, what poses the potential greatest risk, and it's when we run from a grass cover crop like cereal rye into corn, or if we used a broadleaf and, and fall with soybeans. So if growers are thinking of ways to mitigate some potential pest carryover, uh, you know, anytime we go from two closely related organisms, meaning cereal rye to corn, we increase the likelihood for risk. I know a lot of things being tried in the States by, by growers this, at this very moment, I would guess. Uh, that uh, are utilizing a broad range of, of, of cover crops, from clovers to vetch. Um, and those areas are certainly worth exploring at some point. It's the, the, the depth and level of, of information needed uh, has limited us really to, to a lot of work on cereal rye. We've done some, some work adding in oats, uh, which if somebody from Nebraska or north of here were listening would say, well, oats terminates during the winter, so you wouldn't have any present in the spring, but uh, a whole another part of this is forage and forage management and quality of that uh, potential uh, cover crop. And so incorporating oats into that might add an advantage for its rapid growth in the fall period prior to terminating during the winter and continuing with rye in the spring. Uh, and so the, the, the number of factors you could multiply out with various cover crop species and mixes, and there are studies that have been done looking at individual species and mixes. And depending on the study and its geography, the results are a benefit from the mix of the two species or no benefit relative to either species alone. Um, and so we're, we're finding just here in Nebraska that just studying cereal rye, those benefits or risks vary uh, even year to year, um, and that that really highlights IPM because uh, we we can't look at the system and say the result here in 2020 was this, and therefore that will be the result every year. Um, cover crops are add a dynamic to the system. There are vegetation that's present that provides both uh, a benefit or a risk. Uh, and, and growers just need to be, be ready to scout that, in particular in the spring, I think when they 're going to terminate to say well what 's really in my cover crop and there are lots of mm-hmm. tools and techniques available, like sweep nets, that allow them to to gain a, an understanding of what exactly is in their system.
0: okay, you started mentioning the topic of my next question, which is talking about uh, cover crop mixes. How does a grower go about assessing? whether they should use just a single cover crop species or a mix of cover crop species and how that can impact uh, pest populations in their crops.
1: Yeah, I'll, I'll put on my agronomy hat for a minute and suggest that if, if growers are interested in, in mixes that they, they do these on, and, and actually anybody thinking of, of using a cover crop, start with small acres. Uh, and, and, uh, you know, if, if we've gathered anything through the question so far, there's a lot of complexity to this just in the geography of, of where we get results from these things. So if, if I was a grower and I was interested in saying, well, I've been growing cereal rye for a couple of years, I'm really interested in adding something else to that mix. I might be interested in incorporating a legume into that, you know, whether it's uh, a clover or a vetch. Uh, And and if I was going to do that, I'd I'd probably seed some of my field to just my cereal rye, and then I'd incorporate vetch into part of that and take a look at the difference between those two. Those legumes serve a lot of potential benefits in in the carryover and value to the next cash crop. And that type of field experimentation that that they're doing uh, on their farm is a great sounding board to us as entomologists, agronomists, and, and others to say, well, if this is, this is an up-and-coming area that could be employed widely, uh, we can also dig into that to better understand. I, I know this is such a, and growers probably don't like us saying this, it's a very interesting area to work in. Because of of the complexity of it, there are groups working on improving the individual species. You know, for instance, vetch has a potential high carryover dormancy and can germinate in years later, which could cause problems for growers. And uh, other states are working on trying to breed that out of vetch so that it poses less of a potential problem, so growers can grow it more freely. Um, And so that type of background breeding work that's happening uh, is continually kind of pushing the window on the rest of the disciplines, like entomology that I'm in, uh, to to allow us to kind of stay sharp and and continually look back at those things and say, well, how is this now changing arthropods in that system? And I mentioned this when we started, I don't typically get calls on cover crops. I, I love to get these phone calls, but I don't typically get them where they say, well, you know, I just want to let you know I found some beneficial insects in my system what I typically get is the call saying I've, I've got something in my corn and I don't know how it got here. And, <laughs> and uh, you know, how do I, what do I do about it? And so that's, yeah that's been, been my area and, and, and it, and I, I try to uh, keep people informed that, that uh, sometimes, you know, we, we paint a, a rather dark picture of the pest side of things, but that's our interaction. They're actually quite low in frequency and severity, but it, it, it is a remarkably fast paced area with uh, lots of really good questions that, that you've been asking and growers have been asking, just the, the research doesn't follow uh, at the same pace.
0: Sure, of course. So I'm gonna add another level of complexity here as we're, we're talking about this. You know, when growers are creating an IPM, should they be evaluating and and making a recommendation for cover crop species based on that specific field and its needs? You know, are there typically different pest issues in different fields or should growers be looking at it as uh, just kind of an overarching approach?
1: Yeah, this is an excellent question. So growers really want to look at a field-by-field basis. This is part of, of IPM principles and the fact that the history of those fields is really important and, and nobody knows that better than a grower or the consultant that has been scouting right. for years. And so number one that's most helpful to myself or any consultant or a grower in making management decisions is what am I typically dealing with in this system? Uh, year after year, is there a particular pest that keeps showing up or disease that I am dealing with, or something historical in the nature of even agronomic things in that field meaning mm-hmm. i don 't have good water water infiltration or you know I have a lot of erosion. I think those things, if it 's easiest to sit down at the table and write out the the things that need to be corrected on that particular field uh, that that would dictate a lot of the the how I would look at cover crops in those systems and I've seen growers on, uh, you know, where we have a waterway run through a field and it's not had any vegetation on it. They've had a lot of erosion, you know, plant those areas even, you know, as soon as possible and prioritize those to reduce erosion relative to the rest of the field. And so even within a field, I think uh, the more site-specific management we can get to address a key issue that we know has historically been a problem,
0: Mm -hmm. uh, the
1: greater that, that you slide that bar of potential opportunity up. Definitely on a field by field basis, even even within a field, I think, um, and that that'll depend on time and and uh, you know the details that they can allow themselves with some pretty large operations that are being run.
0: Yeah, well, and I mean it's it's kind of there's two major obstacles there for growers that that can sometimes they may intend and have the best of intentions to go on a field by field basis, but. You know, labor can be a problem sometimes. You know, if they're coming along right after harvest, they may not have as many people who can help with, you know, changing out that cover crop seed um, Mm -hmm. on a field-by-field basis. And there's also, uh, on the economic side of it, it might not be, or they might have difficulty buying that, those different types of cover crop seed that they need and still maintaining profitability. What would be your advice to growers on on reconciling that, that economic issue of making sure that they get all the cover crop seed that they need with of those species that will help, but then also helping control those pests with the right cover crop species?
1: Yeah, I w- I would say start early. <laughs> you know, the, the sooner the sooner you you can uh, line up your goals and what needs to be ordered. And then growers do this every year; they're buying their corn and soybean seed for next year now.
0: Uh-huh. Uh huh. That's know, true.
1: They, yeah. the The sooner they can do those things and have that plan in place, uh, lots of our lots of our insect pests are gonna. Very year to year, and show up at a given part of the year, and that's the demand. I think that's hard for growers. Uh, is is saying okay, in late April or early May or or maybe late May, I need to walk that field to see if there's anything out there. Um, you know, they, in addition to all the things you mentioned, they they face this weather component thing. Which uh, is, yes, it's raining today. <laughs> I mean, so it's it's unforgiving in terms of. You know, the best laid plans go to waste in in the midst of we need a rain, but we don't need it to rain for a week or more. This has been a a long conversation in Nebraska with a lot of really good farmers is, uh, you know, they want to do the right thing in terms of uh, maybe following best management practices for timing of termination of a cover crop. You know, mm-hmm. we we provide them advice. It it tends to run counterintuitive to agronomy, so they they have to find this this balance between getting enough biomass that they need, but avoiding carryover of pest pressures that may or may mm-hmm. not happen. Uh, but we all say that in the comfort of of usually a winter meeting, and and everybody's <laughs> uh, comfy and cozy at seventy two degrees in, indoors, and and then spring comes and it's cold, wet. Uh, you know, they have maybe 2,000 acres to cover uh, and uh, all these cover crops to terminate and they can't get to the field. Uh, and so, uh, I, I think if if they can plan for some of that grace period, you know, in terms of, of the logistics of what they're dealing with, that, that can save them a lot of time. And now, if I could briefly mention what happened to us in 2017 uh, with the pest issue, this was really weather related. and uh, So... Gabby, the graduate student that now works with me and has for, for a number of years, uh, we got a phone call in late May from some growers in, in uh, central Nebraska, as well as the central part of the state. And uh, they were seeing uh, some feeding in their their corn uh, that had cover crops in it. And uh, they were concerned. They they thought it was common stock borer, which is an insect that overwinters in the state and moves off of grasses early in the spring. Um, and it typically just outgrows the grass and has to find a larger host. And so uh, we got the the customary blurry photo of an insect uh, because they're, they're quite small, and uh, it didn't quite look like a common stock borer. So we drove out to see, and it turns out it was wheat stem maggot, which is a very unusual insect to find in in corn, period, on uh, huh. the few documentations in the past nothing really to indicate why it was happening but hmm. uh, from the dozen or so fields that we we visited we we found out it was moving out of our wheat and and rye cover crops uh, because they were dying the growers were getting those terminated and as a result this insect was moving over and into corn uh, and so these oh, no, yeah these these are growers that were that are high proponents of using cover crops and so we were there to stem the tide of of saying, you know, these cover crops are still a value in the system. What do we do about this erratic pest that may be showing up yeah. in the system? Uh, and so we actually tied it back to timing of termination. Uh, hmm. And and uh, if those cover crops could be terminated and and allowed to, you know, uh, completely die off before planting the next cash crop, that insect wouldn't transition that that barrier. Now, since 2017, we've not seen that insect again. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, I mean, that's a really good thing for growers. And we we don't want yeah. to see pests in the system. Uh, but it, it did spur some growers to say, well, without knowing a lot about it, I'm I'm just gonna throw an insecticide in in my tank mix when I terminate. And that way if that insect's present, I can get it. We're not certain they would get it. But with with no pest pressure for the last couple of years, uh that's that's probably just eliminating a lot of the beneficial insects that are out there. Hmm. Um, and, and so I, I think that scenario just highlights uh, why why we kinda need to walk those every year and then not to get stuck in habits based on one or two experiences to say, well, this is a norm in the system and, and apply tactics that, that may reduce the total benefit we see from cover crops.
0: Fascinating. Well, um, we're, we're starting to come to the end of our time together, but I do have a couple last questions for you, Justin. If uh, a grower is needing assistance with creating an IPM or reviewing and assessing and, and evaluating their IPM, uh, who should they go to for help? Who would be the best people to help them?
1: Yeah, as, as a collective group, uh, SARE, which is the Sustainable Agriculture Research and Education Uh, provides a lot of information that's compiled across a number of states and funds a lot of cover crop related research. Uh, They have different regions and I'm of course part of the north central region. That's a great group to go for a lot of questions, uh, general questions. I would say on an individual state level if if a grower has a particular question uh, contacting their their university extension we'll probably put them in contact with a lot of people that that may be working on it currently and have some up-to-date information uh, that they're doing. Um, We, uh, through the North Central Soybean Research Program, have been funded across seven states to do cover crop work uh, as it relates to transitions to soybean. Uh, And if you're a grower growing rye cover crop transitioning to soybean, we really haven't seen any pest pressure, (laughs) which is a really good thing. Uh, And so... Uh, there's a lot of multi-state work that's going on, but I think connecting with those organizations or, or uh, individual states uh, will probably get you the most up-to-date information uh, to make the best management decisions.
0: Okay, well great. And thanks again so much, Justin, for joining us today. For more information about all things cover crops, be sure to visit us online at www.covercropsstrategies.com.